you will join me as we pray for the sermon. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, just this day, uh, this opportunity to gather, uh, gather on this Lord's Day, uh, time to spend in fellowship, time to worship you, Lord. Uh, as we hear uh, this preaching, may our worship continue, Lord. Uh, may we respond and worship, Lord, uh, not just today, but may it be the meditation of our heart as we go on this morning. Pray for a blessing over the sermon and just in your word. Uh, as we know that it says, it will go out and not come back. Do your work in us, we ask and pray, Lord. Uh, be with us in our midst. And uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Good afternoon, family. We are continuing in our series on the gospel according to Mark. We're in our 29th week after several different intermissions. We will have at least one more intermission uh, for the summer. Uh, but the plan right now is to finish, uh, should the Lord allow it and will it and tarry, uh, we should finish the gospel according to Mark on the week before Reformation Sunday in the month of October. So we still have a ways to go. And yet, uh, during all of that time, uh, starting with um, the next chapter, most of the rest of the book of Mark takes place in one week. Uh, because most of the rest of the book will uh, deal with the last week of Jesus' life. Yet again, why we call this uh, these gospel books passion narratives, because the, the, the mass portion of the time that the gospel writers spent was spent talking about the suffering and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So uh, that we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at that, uh, and it's fitting because it will take us into Easter. Uh, yes, I was entirely um, wrong thinking last year that we might be able to start Mark in January and finish it in time for Easter. Uh, we won't even finish it in time for the second Easter uh, during our time in the gospel according to Mark, but that's okay. Today we're in Mark chapter 10. Uh, verses 23 through 31, Mark 10, 23 through 31. I invite you to turn there, and when you find it, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? I invite you to read out loud along with me. At the end of that reading, I will say that this is the Word of the Lord, and invite you to respond in true praise by saying thanks be to God. Mark chapter 10. Verses 23 through 31. Let's begin. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, 
With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Today we uh, are really kind of picking up uh, the rich young ruler part two because the discourse that Jesus has here with his disciples is predicated on the discourse that he had with the rich young ruler. And so we're in the same context as we were last week. Uh, just for your own notes, if you're taking notes, our parallel passages in Matthew and Luke are Matthew 19, 23 through 30, and Luke 18, 24 through 30, as well as Luke 22, 28 through 30. There is one part of Matthew's gospel uh, that talks about Jesus telling uh, the disciples that they will rule on 12 thrones uh, in the age to come. And Luke also deals with that, places it further towards the end of his gospel in Luke 22. That's why there's that uh, second part there. And basically where we're at today, the interchange or discourse between Jesus and the rich young ruler has just taken place. And how did that end up? Jesus basically says to the young man that the one thing he lacked was what? To go sell all that he had. Give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow Jesus. And the man seems to decline by virtue of his actions of just walking away. He doesn't just walk away. Uh, it says that he walks away disheartened. Uh, the gospel writers would even notice that Jesus sees that he walks away sorrowful. And it says, for he had great possessions. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's not merely the abundance of his wealth that is the issue. Because Jesus had lovingly unveiled to this young man that though he thought he was doing a great uh, job, though he thought he was doing great at his pious keeping of God's law, in reality, he had already broken all of the law by breaking the first commandment. What's the first commandment? Summed up in, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And truly, this is the issue. He was sorrowful because he had great possessions, and those possessions, it was unveiled to show, had a greater hold on him than his love for God. And this young man could not have kept the law, no one but Jesus himself, who is the only one who is good. Remember, the young man came up to Jesus, and what did he say? He addressed him, he said, good teacher. And what did Jesus say? Why, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. The implication being what? Not that Jesus wasn't good, but that if he was good, that meant that he was 
God, if he was truly good, according to what standard of good? Not the standard that we use amongst each other to call each other good, but the standard that God uses to call what is good, good, and what is evil, evil. Only Jesus truly is good, and only Jesus, because he is the one who is good, because he is God, is the ever, only one that ever did or ever could or ever will keep the law to the standard. Remember, what is the standard? Perfect, perpetual obedience. That is the standard of righteousness. And so Jesus is the only one uh, who ever did or ever could or ever will keep the law to the standard of perfect, perpetual obedience, not just of action that we do with our hands, right? But perfect perpetual obedience of the mind and of the heart and of the hand. Doing and not doing. In perfect that sounded funny. In perfect in perfect reflection of the holy, righteous, perfect and true character and nature of God. The God of heaven who gave the law himself. And so uh, just so that all my cards are kind of on the table, I contend, along with John Calvin, that no matter how far back in time we go, not even the holiest of saints that we could recall to memory, while still in the presence and in the, in the prison of this mortal body, ever, ever possessed such perfect love as to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. Further, that not one remained unspotted by some kind of evil craving. Okay, now, real quick. I have known some holy people. Now, were they holy according to the standard that is required by God to keep the law? They were not. But by God's grace and the help of the Spirit, they lived in a particular direction with their life. Their life had a momentum, and that momentum was that God, by His grace and through His Spirit, was propelling them towards holiness. And they desired it, and they sought it with their lives. And so... I can look at those people, ones that I've known and ones that I've read about. You have, if you have never known anyone holy, you've hopefully at least read about them. Even the apostles would fit in this category. And what can we say? We can say without hesitation that they did not keep the standard of righteousness required by God's holy, righteous, and perfect law. However, they could say, and we could Respond Like Paul said, what did he say? Come and follow me as I follow Christ. And so those people, we don't look at them and say, well, you know, even the holiest person, they, they failed. So what good are they? No. <laughs> you ought to emulate them. You ought to see their life and be challenged by their life and convicted in areas where, where you are not seeking holiness in the way that they are. Not convicted unto condemnation but convicted unto comfort that God in Christ has already redeemed you, already forgiven you. Your sins are under the blood of Jesus. He's freed you to pursue Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength by His grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. Falteringly, yes, but the faltering 
is not the issue because Jesus did it for you. Now you're able to spend yourself in pursuit of the Lord. That was for free. That wasn't even in my notes. Okay, but I, w I wanted you to hear that. That though we can look and with accuracy and with um, uh, even integrity say, along with Scripture, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God. Yet there are those who, by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, have sought to live uh, as holy lives as they can. And we ought to celebrate those people and emulate them and seek to live as holy of a life as we can as well. That ought to be our prayer. Okay? Uh, and so what happens? This rich young ruler, instead of finding that his law-keeping counted for anything eternally, the rich young ruler found out that, the, uh, that through the unveiling answer that Jesus gave him, that he was, in fact, what? Not a law-keeper, but a law-breaker. More than that, he was an idolater. And what was his idol? It was his own material wealth and possessions, and perhaps even his position. Because to go and sell all that he had and give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow Jesus would have meant a surrendering not only of his wealth, but also of his position. For they were all great, and he went away sorrowful, not seeing that what was in front of him, or rather, as Mark has been so inclined to ask us, both explicitly and implicitly throughout all of his gospel, who was in front of him. He could not see that who was in front of him was the embodiment of the pearl of great price and the treasure of heaven hidden in obscurity in Jesus. He ought to have gone away joyful to sell all he had that he might possess Unity, friendship, relationship with Jesus Christ. But like the disciples, even if he had vision to see that Jesus was good, he didn't have the clarity necessary to see that he was Emmanuel. God in the flesh. God with us. And so this rich young ruler came asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Most important question, but he did not like the answer. That there was nothing that he could do in order to inherit eternal life. He had to have Jesus. He must treasure Jesus above all else. Like he did with the crowds in John chapter 6. Jesus essentially told this young man that if he wanted to inherit eternal life, he had to forsake everything else and accept that Jesus was the only thing on the menu. If you don't get the joke there, you can go and read John 6. Jesus was the only thing on the menu. His own doing, the rich young ruler's own doing, was not going to cut it. He was going to have to trust in the doing of another for him and in his place as a substitute. Because he, what did you say? You lack one thing. He lacked. Because he lacked, he must obtain the alien righteousness of another. There was no other option, but he could not see it. And what's the implication? The implication is, like the rich young ruler, we need, we need the alien righteous doing of another. 
what do I mean by alien? I don't mean some extraterrestrial force. I mean, we need the doing that someone else has done to be applied to our life. In other words, that their doing is alien to us because we are not the ones that actively do it. Instead, we passively receive the active obedience of Jesus Christ for us and in our place by grace through faith. But in order to receive that alien righteousness, we must first recognize and acknowledge the lack in us, in our own inability to keep the law, and recognize and acknowledge the just punishment for that our works are of iniquity have earned for us if we are not saved by the doing of another. And Jesus is that another. He is the other. He is the Savior. He is that Savior. He is the one who kept the law perfectly for you and in your place. And the work that he requires of you is, as he shared with those crowds in John chapter 6, not to do, but to believe. Remember, they came asking Jesus, what are the works of God that we should do? And what did Jesus say to them? John chapter 6, 28 and 29, he said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. You see, we do not do good works in order to earn anything from God. We do good works because we have already been given everything as a sheer gift of grace. The doing that results from that grace then springs from a desire to not to gain but rather to give, to express our love, to express our joy, to express our thanks to the God who has saved us and redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb, sent to save the world from their sins, and so that we can give of ourselves for the good of our fellow image bearers, the neighbors that God has placed around us. Of course, who are our closest neighbors? They are the ones in our own homes. Husbands, your closest neighbor that God has called you to love is your wife, your kids, wives. The closest neighbor that God has called you to love is your husband, it's your kids. And those in closest proximity reaching out from there. And of course, even as the New Testament so often says that we are to love others and especially the brethren, especially the, those who are our family in God because of Jesus, our home churches. What's the issue with that? The issue with that is that it can be so much easier to give and love and extend grace to the people who are not right next to us at times, can it? I come here and I see all the other kids that are not my children and I can put up with way more from those kids than I can my own children. I am more likely to extend more grace to your kids than I am to my kids, right? It's the brokenness in my own, my own heart. Uh, and we must remember that we've been called to love our neighbors and our closest neighbors are in 
our own homes. Amen? So this is the context of the moment we're in today. The rich young rulers just walked away. Now, imagine, if you will, the disciples, they're there. We know because Jesus starts talking to them. And they saw this guy. Remember, the text told us that he came running. There was a sense of impropriety in this young person who was called a ruler. He had great wealth. People like that did not run back then, but he ran to the feet of Jesus, prostrated himself, called him good. And the disciples might be elbowing each other. Say, Jack, do you see that guy? Do you know who that is? Do you know where he came from? I remember that guy. He was in the he was in the synagogue. I saw him. He was at the gate. He was the one that said who could come in and not come in. Those are the rulers. He's a ruler. This rich young ruler. How could he be a ruler at that age? Do you know who this guy is? Have you seen this guy? Well, I wonder if Jesus is going to ask him to come and join us. And then they sit and they watch. And they listen to what transpires between Jesus. And you can almost imagine him kind of wincing, like, oh, Jesus, what? That would, he didn't tell us we had to sell everything. You go, what? What is he doing? Jesus, what are you doing? Couldn't you be a little more seeker-sensitive here? Don't you understand who that guy was? We really could have used a win here. I mean, think about the doors that would be open to you, Jesus, if that guy was on our team. He knows so-and-so, and they know so-and-so. I mean, Jesus, come on. I mean, Judas was looking in the money bags going, we could really use this guy on our team. Of course, he was because he was a thief, but that's a story for another day. How quickly we look and judge things the same way. We judge others. We judge ourselves. We look at other people in the kingdom and we think that they must be the star players while we get to be the, the peons, the, the nosebleed people. We, we, we're the nobodies. We need the reminder of our epistle reading today that we'll have at the end. But part of it says what? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what we needed. Wisdom. Righteousness. Sanctification and redemption. We don't come offering our own wisdom to God. We don't come offering our own righteousness to God. We do not come offering our own uh, ability to sanctify or redeem ourselves. Rather, we are brought in by Jesus Christ. We are made wise by Jesus Christ. We are made righteous by Jesus Christ. We are sanctified by Jesus Christ because it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that is able to redeem us. So that as it is written, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Jesus seems to anticipate the disciples' dismay. Of course, we know that he could know what they were thinking. And so Jesus says to them in Mark 10, verse 23, as he looked around at them, he said, what? How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24 tells us the disciples are amazed. And what Jesus says, what, what do you mean? Why? 
See, in their world, the rich always seem to get everything easier than everyone else. Their world is predicated on the premise that the only way to find rest in life is to obtain riches. And usually in their world, the richest people are tyrants of one degree or another. And it's not difficult for them to go wherever they want, whenever they want, however they want. I mean, consider the rich young ruler himself. Jesus is on his way out of town. He's busy. He's, he's going somewhere. There are crowds around him. And yet this rich young ruler runs right up to Jesus and throws himself at the front of the line, so to speak. It was also the rich and the powerful who flaunted not only their wealth, but in pious circles flaunted their ability to give. Remember the widow's mites. They had actually even developed a receptacle in those places in the synagogue that was shaped uh, in such a way that it was like a trumpet. So that when you dropped coins inside of this receptacle, the noise of the coins would create uh, this, well, they would drop them in, it would create this noise, and the bigger the gift, the bigger the noise that everyone could hear, so that everyone could notice, oh, you know, kunk, 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 kunk. oh, so-and-so must have just walked in, right? Part of the, the joke in the midst of the story of the widow's might is that likely her offering made no noise at all, and the only person who noticed truly was Jesus. So the disciples are amazed at Jesus' word, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now much, and I would also say at times too little, has been made of this analogy given by Jesus over the years. And for good reason, because um, it's a little obscure. Uh, camels and needles don't normally go together, right? Um, uh, they're not commonly associated with one another. And uh, most analogies and metaphors use common content Hence the old adage, not to mix metaphors. It causes confusion. It can create alarm, especially when you are literally mixing common usages. We've all heard someone say, don't burn your bridges. We've also heard people say, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But imagine your alarm, unless you had just made it behind enemy lines during World War II. Imagine your alarm if you heard someone say, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. Excuse me, what? That's mixing metaphors. It causes confusion. It can cause alarm. So what in the world do camels and needles have to do with each other? This has led many people to speculation. Some have searched and found that there was a narrow gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. Like any bottleneck design, it created quite the traffic jam in Jerusalem, and it could be difficult at times to even get a camel uh, to go through. However, the only issue is that that gate does not seem to come into existence 
until long after Jesus' time on earth. And so it is highly unlikely. I'll go as far as to say he didn't reference this gate. Uh, it is highly unlikely that when Jesus says the camel through the needle, he's not talking about the needle gate. More importantly, the qualifier that Jesus uses shortly after is what word? Look in the text. In Mark chapter 10, he will eventually say to them, what? They ask who can be saved. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is what? Impossible. So even at the needle gate, it was, even if we were to allow that Jesus was talking about the needle gate, which he wasn't, but let's say he did. It was possible to pass the camel through that gate. It just wasn't practical. All the time. But Jesus qualifies what he's saying by saying what? With man, it is impossible. And I would go as far as to say it is certainly those who wish to make it not seem so impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom that would seek to use this real gate that came along much later after Jesus' time on earth to make sense of Jesus' words. In other words, if you wanted to make it seem like Jesus' words were softer than what they meant, then it would be easy to point at that gate and try to use that as what Jesus was talking about. Others have latched on to the fact that the Greek word used for camel is only one vowel separated from the word for cable, specifically not like what you watch on TV. They didn't have that back then, by the way. Uh, but like a ship's cable, a ship's rope, uh, specifically those giant braided ropes used for ships. And funny that even in English, the two words camel and cable are so close in spelling. And in some ancient texts, the, the words were actually used interchangeably so that only context would clue you in to whether or not the meaning was cable or camel. And for many years... In church history, this was the understanding that was held on to, and for my part, it at least makes sense. Look, you can imagine Jesus being there, and as he so often did, he looked around at his surroundings and used uh, things that were there to talk about uh, and teach uh, the people, talk about the things that he wanted to teach them. Remember when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower. We imagined what it would have been like to be with Jesus on the shores of Galilee, along that famous road that, that went along those shores, and talked about maybe even seeing a sower at the time he's teaching, throwing seed. And what did he say? Imagine a sower goes and sows his seed, and some falls on the hard-packed soil of the road, and some in the rocky soil, and some in the thorny soil. You can almost imagine now, Jesus looks around, and maybe, let's pick on, you know, one of the, the more obscure uh, disciples, maybe Andrew is over there on the side, and he had snagged his robe on one of those thorns, and he had a needle, and he's trying to sew up his robe, and Jesus says, look here, see this needle? And, and look over there, see, see that boat that's tied to the dock over there, see that rope? Holding the boat to the dock. Imagine if I took that rope and tried to thread it through this needle to mend 
Andrew's Road. We know that most recently there have been some infants and perhaps children around Jesus. Remember, suffer the little children to come unto me. Maybe you would even look at the children and say, Children, if I needed to mend my rope, would I go over there and try to thread that rope through my needle to mend my clothes? And what would the children say? Right? Because even the children would know that would be silly. You can't do that. It would be impossible to thread that ship's cable or that boat rope through the needle. It would be impossible. But if I unwound this rope and stripped away all the strands that were holding it back, could I eventually get down to a fiber small enough to thread this needle? Now, what was impossible before becomes more possible. Yes, so it is. With the wealthy and rich who love their money and property and position, there is so much, so many strands wound around and braided together, entangling them in this world, that it is just as impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God as it is for me to thread that rope through my needle. For it is just as easy to be so earthly minded that you are not fit for heavenly good as it is to be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. So what has to happen? The things that hold it back must be stripped away. What did Jesus say to the young man? One thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor and come follow me. What is Jesus inviting him into? He's inviting him into that stripping away, that pruning in his life so that he might have Jesus and find that Jesus is enough. This is should not be news to us. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What did he say? Lay aside every way. Lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Lay it aside. Strip it away. Strip it back. Leave it behind so that you may run this race with endurance. It might be easier for us to think about someone, a pagan, who worships literally other gods made out of wood or stone or precious metal. And if they came to us and they said they wanted to seek eternal life through Jesus, what would they need to do? I hope all of us would Agree that one of the things that they would need to do is the pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament, even when the Israelites themselves would fall away from God and worship other gods. What would they need to do? To tear down those high places. To tear down the altars that they had erected to these false gods. To get rid of their idols. Destroy them. How many times were they torn down and even ground into powder 
so that they could not be stashed away in a storage closet someday to pull out at a later time and put back in a place of worship. None of us would have an issue with saying, no, I'm sorry. You cannot continue to worship Buddha and Jesus or Krishna and Jesus or Muhammad and Jesus or any totem that any native person may have. We would say what? You must get rid of these things. You must what? Strip them away. Destroy them. Get rid of them. Because you cannot serve them and Jesus. This is why I say what was unveiled about this rich young man was not merely that he had a lot of wealth and it was going to take a long time for him to sell everything and come back and follow Jesus. And he just wanted to do it right away. No, he went away sorrowful because those possessions and that wealth and his position held his heart. They held his heart. They ruled him instead of him ruling them. And so these things must be stripped away. If this does not happen, then as Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Mark 10, then the rich man is good for nothing but to cast anchor in the earth. Instead, he must be loosed and disentangled from his riches so that thread by thread he may be got through the eye of the needle. But in more modern times, teachers have just embraced the absurdity of camels going through needles. And why is that okay? Well, it's okay because, number one, it's the word that we have. And as best as we can tell, it's the word that was used. Whether cable or camel was intended, we don't actually know. But because the qualifier that Jesus will give is the word impossible... <laughs> It is just as impossible for the camel to enter the eye of the needle as it is for the ship's cable. And even a child can see and know and understand by that example, whether it's ship's cable or whether it's fuzzy camel, even a child can see that what Jesus is talking about is the idolatry of greed and love of money that makes entrance into the kingdom of God impossible. And of course, it is the idolatry and love of money that is the problem and the thing in view here and not money or wealth itself. Lest we forget that it is not money that is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. As Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Can read verses 3 through 10 on your own time, but verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But what is Paul recommending instead of the love of money? Verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness. With contentment, he says, is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So it is not money itself that is the problem, but the love of money and the snare that it can become if we were ruled, if we are ruled by it rather than ruling over it by the grace of God and the help of the Spirit. And there are many 
who in time past and even today were in the kingdom and are wealthy, but they have not considered their wealth as anything other than a tool to accomplish whatever God has called them to accomplish. Knowing that like all earthly things in this age, it can be gone in a moment, in one breath. And what matters more than all the wealth in the world is that they hold and are held by Jesus Christ. So that's a great memory verse for today, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. You can memorize that before you get home today. But contentment must be cultivated. It must be cultivated. And so we must hold what we have in our hands in trust rather than trust in what we hold in our hands. I'll say that one more time. We must hold what we have in our hands in trust rather than trust in what we hold in our hands. What do I mean? A trust is something that we use for the good of the one for who it is for. You've heard of trust funds, right? People, you can establish a trust fund for your child that they can only access at a certain point or can only be used by a guardian for their benefit and on their behalf at certain times. A trust is something that we use for the good of the one for who it is for. And what do we understand about our wealth, however great or small it may be, that we are stewards of that wealth, that it doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God. We are stewards of what God has placed in our hands to be used for His purposes on earth, but we so often get it backwards. And rather than holding in trust, no matter how little or much we hold in our hands, we trust in what we hold instead. We put our trust in that wealth. We put our trust in those riches. And the poorest man, the poorest man can become a miser over two pence if those two pence are what he believes will be his salvation. And this is why generosity is the expression of the Christian ethic. To live with open hands. To be hospitable with much or with little. For truly as God revealed that Jesus said when he was exhorting the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 35. It is better to give than to receive. And the blessing that the person who receives when they are in need is matched. Right? So if there's someone in need and they are given a blessing by someone else, the blessing that that person in need receives is matched and exceeded by the blessing that the one who is giving receives when their gift is given, given cheerfully as unto the Lord. And hopefully you've experienced this. Where you have either given in tithes and offerings to the church for the work of God, in ways that are self-sacrificial or in giving to someone else specifically in need, person to person, whether anonymously or, or face to face. And what happens out of what you have and what God has given you, you turn and you bless that other person. And it is a blessing for them, truly, especially if they are in need. It's a blessing for the church when God's people give, truly. 
But the blessing that the person giving receives intrinsically matches and exceeds the blessing of the one who is on the receiving end of that gift. And you can only know that when you experience it. Right? It's like one of those things when you tell your kids. You'll, you'll, you'll understand one day when you have your own kids, right? There's something that you just, you're not going to understand this until you actually get there and you do it. And giving is like that. You can hear all day long. It's better to give than to receive. But until you do it and experience it, you'll never know that joy of what it means to give unto the Lord as unto the Lord and experience on the inside, intrinsically, spiritually, from the Lord. Uh, what can only be described as, as God smiling on you. It's an amazing thing. And this is how Jesus taught his disciples, and therefore us as well, to live, laying up for themselves what? Treasures in heaven. Not being anxious, but seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. You can find that in Matthew chapter 6. I encourage you to go and read that. Uh, this week, uh, Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 34. But the grace that's offered in our text today is Jesus' words that what is impossible for man, and so we see it to be, for no matter how much progress we may be seen to make, in this life, throw a significant amount of money into the mix, into the scenario, and even the holiest of men seem to lose their minds and their bearings. Right? That's why the famous question is, okay, but seriously, how much? Right? How, how much would it take? Let me get my checkbook. How, how big? How many zeros does it have to be for you to what? Sell what you have, give something, to give up something. How, how much? How much? How much? That's the famous question. Why? Because you know what follows that is. Come on, everybody has a number. What, what's your number? What, what's the number? How much does it have to be? How many zeros does it have to be? But Jesus says what is impossible for man is what? Here's the grace. It is possible for God. Now before we think that Jesus is just <clears throat> throwing words around, where have we most recently together heard these words? <clears throat> it was in association with the virgin birth. When the angel that stands in the presence of God every day said, For nothing will be impossible for God. And we have seen the miracle, though how difficult and how rare it is, when even wealthy men are not held and ruled by their treasure, but rather ruled by God. And are able to use as good stewards what God has put in their hands because they're not trusting in what they hold. They're holding what they have in their hands in trust for the Lord. Now this is this passage in particular 
has caused many people to uh, take on what is called chosen poverty or take a vow of poverty. But hear me, choosing a chosen poverty is no more holy than having riches. Again, it is the power that those riches have over you. And an impoverished man with not even two cents to his name is capable of committing the sin of greed just as well as the rich man. So we do not become holy by giving up our riches and embracing poverty. We become holy by being brought under the righteous blood of Jesus Christ and allowing the Spirit over time to sanctify us and change our desires and loosen the grip of sin's hold on us so that we can be good stewards of what is in our hands, whether it is much or whether it is little. Amen? So Peter chimes in, and we're, we're almost done here. Peter chimes in, and what does he say? See, Lord, we have given up. Don't you love Peter? He's, he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we can put our name forward here. See, Lord, we've given up. And so they had, and they did well. But even that was not enough to earn, was it? And yet, what does Jesus do? Instead of merely saying, Peter, 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 stop, stop, Peter. Yet again, you really don't get it. This is what you're doing, and this is what I want you to do. That's what I want to say to Peter. This is what you're doing, and this is what I just zip it, shut, just be quiet. See, Lord, we've done this, and what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't belittle him, he actually validates what Peter says to a certain degree. And what do we find? We find that the disciples sacrifice at that time, and by implication, yours. Yours and mine, our sacrifices, though they are not enough to earn anything, yet they are accepted and they are not lost, but rather they are stored up for us as riches in heaven because we have prized Jesus over all and above all. Now, suffering alone does not a martyr make, okay? It is the cause that makes the martyr. And likewise, the giving up of things is no matter if the heart is not one of devotion. We spoke of this briefly last week in reference to fasting. If you just give up food and it has nothing to do with your devotion to the Lord and you're not giving up that food in order to seek the Lord and put him in that place where the food was, then you have not fasted. In the sense of a spiritual fast. You have merely gone on a diet. Okay? Likewise, the giving up of things is no matter if the heart is not one of devotion. So this goes for time in service, efforts in uh, giving, tithes and offerings, food and fasting. If we do them for earthly accolade, we have already received our reward, Jesus would say. If we do them to gain heaven, 
then we have only paved our own road to hell. But Jesus says here in this statement about a hundredfold to indicate not necessarily an in-kind replacement, as many prosperity gospels are wont, uh, prosperity gospel preachers are wont to try and imply. See, if you just sow the seed, brother, you can receive back a hundredfold in this life what you have given up. That's not what Jesus is necessarily saying. But rather, that the intrinsic value of the comfort, joy, satisfaction, peace, and righteousness that results from prizing Jesus above all else so far exceeds the comforts and rewards of this world that they are reckoned to us at an exchange rate of 100-fold, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Do you understand what I mean? Do you go to another country unless they have some kind of agreement with the United States? You cannot take out your U.S. dollars and just use them uh, in exchange for goods and services. You must go and get new currency. And you have to exchange the American currency that you have for the currency that that country uses. And what I'm saying is that there is a different kind of currency in the kingdom of God. And when we give up, when we do sacrifices unto the Lord, we give up certain things, whether they be, as Jesus said, houses or kindred. Don't forget Luther's famous uh, hymn. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, right? Like when we give those things up, they're not lost. They're not forgotten. God has seen those things. And they are treasuring up for you. They are storing up for you treasure in heaven. And you will receive intrinsically, not necessarily one for one, kind for kind, but God is able to intrinsically bestow to you Comfort, satisfaction, joy, peace, and righteousness that so far exceeds what you have given up as an exchange that it's beyond comparison. It's beyond comparison. And even if you did receive in this life a kind-for-kind kind exchange like Job did, we still learn, and you will learn if you go back and read what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this week that we cannot take any of that with us. It doesn't transfer over into the kingdom. And so even if we do have those things, Jesus says, what? We'll have them together with persecutions. And so this is what we need to understand. That better is a dry morsel with quiet, Proverbs 17.1 than a house full of feasting with strife. What is he talking about? That's what Paul said when he said that godliness with contentment is great gain. For what can it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? And then we end here in Jesus at the end, makes this statement, what does he say? But many who are first will be last, and the last 
first. Basically, he says to them, you will not be forgotten, but remember that there were those who came before you as well. Who were those? They were the saints that came before the disciples, mostly referred to as the prophets. And there were those who came before you of whom you have been preferred. Why? Because the prophets only dreamed and had visions of what the disciples were currently experiencing. What does John say in his letters to the church? What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched. And so in a real sense, the disciples were preferred, though they came later, they were preferred. Those who came first were last, and those who were last were first. But it also says to the disciples, yes, you are preferred to those who came first in your experience, but there are also those coming after you who will be preferred in their experience to you. Why? Because we still await the coming we still await the coming of the King. And there will come a day when those who get to experience His return will be preferred over us all. As the first is last and the last is first. And yet even then, what does Scripture tell us? That when the trumpet sounds and the King returns, dead in Christ will rise first. And yet again in microcosm it will all be flipped on its head again. So let us wait with patience setting aside the things of the world so that uh, setting aside the things of the world that so easily ensnare and enslave us that we may run this race with endurance that we may be bold and generous Loving our neighbors and ruling our lives rather than being ruled by our lusts and our greeds. May God help us by his grace and spirit to treasure and prize Christ, his kingdom, and his church above all else. So that if we have him, we know truly that we have all that we need for godliness with contentment is great gain. So let us not boast in our riches, or even what we have given up. But let us boast in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray today? Father, we thank you for this word. God, a convicting word, for there may be things in our lives today that we have allowed to rule us rather than ruling over them. There may be things that we have held in our hands and put our trust in those things rather than holding those things in trust and trusting you. So God, we ask that even today in this moment that you would come by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Convict our hearts where they need to be convicted and comfort them where they need to be comforted. So that we may rise up from this place today in newness of life and walk and follow after you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, by your grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as we move into a time of communion. May we feed on Christ in our hearts by faith.